We left off last year. Open your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel 12, right about the halfway point of 2 Samuel. And Lord willing, again, we'll be able to uh, finish the story of David. Uh, the biography of David is the longest biography in the Bible. And so no wonder it has taken us so long uh, to get through it. You'll find 2 Samuel 12 on page 283 of your pew Bibles. And with that, if you will, stand with me. Reverence of God's Word, we'll read the first six verses. I trust you you know the context, particularly since we looked at it last year. David has just committed sin against Bathsheba and her husband Uriah, and this is its consequences. Starting in verse 1, The Lord said to Nathan, to David, He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. There came a traveler to the rich man. He was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we always, as we gather together, we ask for the same thing, trusting that you will hear our prayers and you answer them in a way that will bring glory to your name. Lord, I ask that you would open our hearts, that we would receive your word, our mind, that we would understand it. Our eyes that we would see your glory, our ears that we would hear and heed your word, our mouth that we would speak the truth of the gospel beginning in our own lives to one another in love and to the world around us where so desperately needs to hear the truth of the gospel. May you open our hands and our feet that we will go in obedience to Christ, transformed by the power of the gospel. Lord, this is a difficult chapter for us to look at. We can let it be one by which we are looking in a mirror and not looking uh, at, at others, but looking at ourselves. Would you be so kind to confront us here this morning? May I decrease so you can increase. Name your soul, we pray. Amen. Be seated. I'm sure at some point in your life you found yourself watching more wrestling than you care to admit. You know, and it's like like I, I grew up watching wrestling, right? My my brother and I, we had uh, I guess you would call them stuffed animals, but we were boys, so we wouldn't call them stuffed animals. They were like wrestling buddies or something. You know, and uh, uh, if I remember right, we, we both had one of the Legion of Doom, right? And I think he had Hulk Hogan, I had the Ultimate Warrior, so I got the better end of this deal. And, and we would like body slam off the top bunk, right, onto the Legion of Doom, right? And we'd count each other out and all this stuff. Love wrestling back in the day. Uh, you know, my, my, my favorite was, of course, Legion of Doom and Ultimate Warrior. Hacksaw Jim Duggan, you know what I'm talking about? Had the, had the big two by four, you know, going around. Uh, the, the, the Bushwhackers, you remember them? The Bushwhack Twins? Uh, they were cool. They walked funny, which is what I like so much about them. There's a bunch of rednecks on, on the screen. Uh, I loved, loved wrestling. Watched a little bit of it in middle school, the Rise of the Rock and stuff, but, but, but uh, I loved it. This loved it. But, but let me tell you how every episode, and they, they are episodes of wrestling works, right, is one guy, uh, will, the writers will send one guy out to the ring with a microphone, 
And he suddenly has beef with another guy that he was a tag team partner with six months before, right? And now they got beef, and he's, he's got to call them out, right? And to make the beef even worse, because this all has to go to the next pay-per-view event, right? And so he'll go out there, and he'll say something like this. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. What I'm going to tell you, what I'm going to do, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. This, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do, right? That's the essence of what he says. While he's telling you what he's going to do, the music starts, right? The guy he has beef with, you know what I'm talking about. And he comes out, won't come out to the ring, of course, because we have to draw this thing out, got to kill an IR TV. And what does he do? He's got a microphone in hand. He says, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do, okay? I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do, right? And the other guy, well, let me tell you what I'm going to do. Now that you told me what you're going to do, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. Well, I'm going to tell you what I'm, right? And it just goes back and forth, back and forth, right? They use their little bumper sticker slogans, the things they sell t-shirts with, and it's back and forth. Not much is accomplished. And eventually, cut scene, on to the next fight, right? Well, unfortunately, I, I'm pretty sure the way we Christians address sin isn't much better than some of those wrestlers. We at best, it seems anymore, is we just call each other out, scream across the room, or write about it online. Can we just say there are two simple truths we need to accept before we can look at this text? And we are just scratching the surface here this morning. The first is that sin is serious and we do not take it seriously enough. Sin is serious, but we do not take it seriously enough. And if that is true, the second point is true. And that we as Christians, as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ are called to carry and to confront each other in love because sin is so seriously. Both are true because we see both so clearly laid out for us in this text. And so what we see then naturally is that Nathan is confronting David. And that's the first thing we see in, in chapter 12 is the confrontation of sin. Now, we're immediately introduced to a character we had met previously in our study of the biography of David. Nathan first shows up in chapter 7 of 2, two Samuel. There uh, he is the one who uh, tells David to actually go build the, the temple before he tells him, you know, why don't we hold back on that? But more importantly, he is the one that, that gives David the Davidic covenant. That is that he will never lack a son on his throne. Of course, we know that is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Thus, the reader already knows who Nathan is, and we know that this is a prophet who has the king's ear. Nathan was a man David was willing to hear. But what Nathan had to say to David in this instance was not easy to hear. Can I just add a, a bit of a footnote here? Since what we have is one believer confronting another believer regarding of his, of his sin. A few words regarding accountability and confronting others in sin. Just a couple of things here. I think I have them up on the screen. The first is that Nathan is called to this ministry. You see it there in verse 1, right? That Yahweh the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan is not motivated by his own ego or sense of self-righteousness. When he, and it comes to accountability and confrontation, some of us are far too eager to participate in that sort of ministry. We love pointing out the errors of other people. That is not what, what Nathan does here. 
He is called, and with that calling comes a sense of humility. And so he goes with fear and trepidations, we'll see. But he is called to it, and he will fulfill that calling God has on his life. It's not about ego. It is about obedience. Secondly, notice here that Nathan is courageous in his confrontation of David. Calling out a sovereign king in this way risks execution. We saw this a few weeks ago when we studied Esther in your reading, right? Esther, the reason Esther wanted to hesitate about interrupting his, her, her husband is because she knew it, it would mean that she, she, she could be executed. Or ask John the Baptist about this sort of thing. John the Baptist bravely and courageously confronts King Herod and as a result ends up being arrested and being executed. This is real courage here. He is risking his very life, but far too many of us lack genuine courage in this way. Nathan would rather lose a friend than to lose obedience. He is a man of courage. Now, we are courageous in the sense that many of us are willing to do this sort of stuff from a distance on a screen. That's not courage. This is courage. Thirdly, we need to see here is that Nathan is David's companion. Although we have little information about Nathan, he clearly, again, had the king's ear. This suggests to me that Nathan's relationship with David was not primarily adversarial. Rather, he had developed a real relationship with David. Now, this does not mean that Nathan had compromised himself as the prophet of God, um, or that he didn't respect David's authority as his king. But over the course of years, Nathan had invested in David so that when the moment would arrive, he, had, he knew that David would listen to him. This is, this is a lesson I, I think that we've really got to learn. In ministry, I, was, I received good, a, a good advice from a professor of mine who said that in any form of leadership, whether you're a parent or a pastor or whatever it is, what you need to know is for every one word of criticism, there needs to be 10 attaboys, right? I love that. That is 10 words of encouragement for every one word of, 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 of criticism. So whenever I coach, right, every coach, you need to be able to holler and scream and bench people, right? You need to be able to make them run until they can't run anymore. That's part of coaching because you demand better. But if all you do is that eventually no one will hear what it is you have to say. So if you spend all your time online bashing the libs or owning the, the, the repubs or whatever, I don't know what terms we're using these days, right? Which you're, you're going to be viewed only as a critic without, that doesn't have the best interests of the people you claim to love. If Nathan is exclusively a critic, David would ignore him. But rather, uh, Nathan has invested in a relationship with David so that when he has to confront David, David knows it is done with an attitude of love and care. I've even had to say in moments like this where I said, surely after all these years, you know my motivation is not animosity or ego or anything like that. It's love. It's love. And please notice that Nathan does not confront David over text messaging, social media, or even a phone. 
Well, nevertheless, notice what, what Nathan does is he tells a parable to David, right? He tells him a parable. We often think Jesus is the only one that does parables. Parables are found all over the Bible. But at its center, it's a straightforward story, at its center is the story about a shepherd. It's interesting, isn't it? Because here is David who was a shepherd. And our, our theme here is, is it started out with David, the, the shepherd who would become king. And then once he became king, he's called to be a shepherd. It's, it's interesting the way the story is, is written, right? And, and here, Nathan is, is going, moving David back to the time that he was a shepherd. Uh, and and that, that, that sort of, and again, it's a straightforward story. You've got two men, right? One is rich, one is poor. A very common way of telling a story in the ancient world. The rich man has many uh, uh, sheep, right? He's got a large herd, a uh, large flock of, of sheep. The poor man has but one. And for the poor man, this single lamb is part of his family. You see it there at the end of verse 3. It was like a daughter to him. And whenever I read that this week, I thought, this probably makes sense to you city people, right? I mean, the way you treat your pets is just weird. I mean, let's be honest, okay? It's just, it's just, just be honest, right? Well, they became a sort of pet, right? They're not just going to get rid of their, their little lamb. This is, uh, uh, this is a precious pet to them, something uh, very good to them. Well, uh, one day a traveler comes and the rich man hosts his friend. And you remember how important hospitality is in the ancient Near Eastern culture, right? You must provide a full meal and everything else. And well, the man looks at his flock. He says, well, I don't want to lose any, any of this. So what I'll do is I will go and take and kill the poor man's single ewe lamb, right? And that language is important because it's the same language used to describe what David did to Bathsheba. David saw and took, and then he responded by killing an innocent man. So Nathan purposely borrows that language for his parable. And remember again, this lamb has been likened to a young woman, much like Bathsheba was a young woman. Well, this, of course, in the parable is an act of injustice. And as a king, David is responsible for securing justice in the land. And the, the Bible repeatedly condemns this sort of abuse. And so in verse 5, David is rightly angered. I love the word anger there is literally in the Hebrew means nose. In fact, I think I can prove it to you here. Uh, Genesis 2, 7, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his anger, right? Breathed into his nose, his nostrils. Now, why is the word nose uh, in a different context anger? It's, it's, it is because it's a Hebrew idiom, meaning that when you get angry, you get red faced, Right? Do you do that? I know you do, right? You get really angry. Remember the old like uh, Looney Tune cartoons? Every time they got mad, their their face would get like super red and big, and then turn into like a flame, right? That that's that's where this term comes from. So you see in Proverbs fifteen, of which we saw that a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up the nose. That's what it means. It makes you angry. And that's the same word used here, is that when David hears this story, this act of injustice, his nose gets red. He gets angry. And so it says his anger was greatly kindled. Now, this is a common phrase used throughout the Bible to describe wrath. Can I give you just two examples here? The first is numbers, when God became angry. People complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his nose was kindled, right? His anger was kindled. He became angry and he's He's going to be like one of those wrestlers, right? And in 1 Samuel chapter 20, it says, Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. Why? Because Jonathan had befriended David. You read before that, Saul's anger was kindled against David. 
So any friend of David is an enemy of, of, of Saul. So, so here, clearly, we have precedent saying that David isn't just frustrated. David is angry, and he is going to do something about it. And so notice he demands two things of this rich guy. First, he demands judgment in the form of execution. Notice the language. He deserves to die without pity. Now, this crime is not a capital crime. However, David is so angry that a rich man was steal from a poor man in this way, leaving him destitute and alone, that he, he thinks it's so severe that the man shouldn't merely be punished, he should be executed. Just as he took and killed this little ewe lamb, so too this man should be taken and his life should be taken as well. But not only that, restitution is what he demands. He shall restore the lamb fourfold. So his last act on this earth is to quadruple the man's number of lambs, and then he shall go to the gallows. Now, throughout history, restitution was viewed as more than restoring what was stolen, right? You stole someone's pen. Well, no one cares, but you would, you would replace that pin, right? Uh, that's the way we often think of restoration. But historically, restoration is you steal someone's pin, you're going to give them four pins, right? And this was a, a, a way of, of deterring similar acts. And so you'll notice here, he thinks this should be fourfold. Now, this is really fascinating to me. I didn't, I didn't ever notice this. In what follows, starting in chapter 12 to the rest of 2 Samuel, is the downfall of David. What we've seen so far in David is things keep getting better and better and better, and he hits a peak until finally one day he doesn't go out to war with, with his men. Instead, he looks over and he sees Bathsheba in the distance, and that is the beginning of his downfall. He just, everything just spirals out of his control. And what's interesting is after this, David has four sons who die prematurely. It's almost like his judgment and his demand for restitution comes back on him. These sons, by the way, is the first one that we're introduced here in chapter 12. Later, um, Ammon dies in chapter 13 of 2 Samuel. Absalom dies in chapter 18 of 2 Samuel. And Adonijah dies in 1 Kings chapter 2, right as David is about to pass away himself. Well, it's a pretty straightforward story, right? But what, what, what do we do with this? What are some points of application? I trust you know where this is going. Nathan is about to point out to David, you're the man in the story. But before we get there, what, what do we do with this? A couple points of application before we go home. The first is that sin makes hypocrites of us all. Sin makes hypocrites of us all. You may recall in our study of Proverbs that it showed that fools ignore advice, but they freely are willing to give it, Right? The wise man is one who is slow to give advice, but he is quick and he humbly receives wisdom. So it is with sinners. It is amazing how easy it is for us to see the errors of other people, but are so woefully blind to our own. I'm willing to bet you've been in a discussion. We'll use that word because it sounds nicer in public. Well, we're in a discussion where, where we're saying, you know, this, this, this part, things need to change. Like, oh, yeah? Well, well, what about you doing this in your life? And immediately your response is not, oh, you've got a good point. Maybe I should sit and ponder about my own hypocrisy. Your, your, your immediate response is justification. I'm different. I'm the parent. I'm the boss. I'm the one in authority. Or that's a different situation. Stop, stop, stop changing the subject, right? 
We so easily see the errors of others. We are blinded to our own. David's pride has blinded him. He's quick to condemn a stranger, someone who doesn't actually exist, we discover. But he is slow to see his own sin. David demanded both judgment and restitution, but was unwilling to suffer it himself. When God brought judgment to David, as we'll see later in the chapter, David responds, uh, asking, he begs for reprieve. When God takes his son in judgment, David begs for mercy. Ironic, isn't it? Everyone else deserves judgment, but me. I deserve mercy, but no one else does. We would do well to learn to humbly examine our own lives, our own hearts, our own motivations before directing our ire at others. This is what the Apostle Paul tells us in his uh, works to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This is the context of communion, an act that had been abused in the Corinthian church. What does Paul say here is, is that, that the act of sharing in the Lord's Supper is an act of self-examination. Not, why are they partaking in the Lord's Supper, but should I be partaking in the Lord's Supper? Likewise, in 2 Corinthians, he reminds them the same, examine yourselves to see whether you are of the faith. Test yourself, he says. Well, it's clear that sin will make us all hypocrites unless we come humbly before the Lord. Secondly, sin will never remain David learned the hard lesson that either in this life or in the next, our sin will be exposed. David thought he was clever and covered all his tracks. Uriah was dead. Uh, uh, Bathsheba's pregnancy was easily explainable. And taking the widow into his home would have been looked at as an act of compassion. And David thought he had it all figured out. And note this, it would be in Bathsheba's best interests for her to say nothing. What does David have to fear? No one needs to know what happened. With sin almost always comes a cover-up. Whenever Adam and Eve first ate of the fruit and God begins walking in the garden, what's the first thing they do? They cover up their sin. For one, they try secrecy, and that's the first thing we do, right? Secrecy, and that they went into hiding. We do this by, through anonymity. Well, I didn't write that email. I didn't post that online. I didn't send that text. Well, that wasn't me that logged on to that website. No, that's not my computer. Those aren't my friends. I wasn't there at the time. Secrecy, privacy, distance, no one will know. Or we'll try to cover our own tracks, right? We'll claim that we were somewhere else or we get other people involved. We'll gaslight others to convince them of, of another truth. We, we, we just try to cover our tracks the best that we can. Or we will blame shift, right? Again, this is Adam and Eve. They first go into hiding secrecy. And then when that doesn't work, they start blaming someone else. So what does Adam say? It's not my fault. 
That woman you gave me, which is ultimately saying it's God's fault. What did she say? Well, it's not my fault. It's that serpent made me a victim of this, right? It's his fault. We do this all the time. And that leads, fourthly, if if none of these uh, efforts work, we can always play the victim, can't we? We can always play the victim. You can blame your childhood, blame your parents, blame past trauma or present fears. You're a victim and you cannot be expected to behave otherwise. Which is, I believe, demeaning, but we apparently are okay with that as a culture. But the Bible is clear that what is hidden will at some point be revealed. Luke chapter 18, Jesus says, For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything sacred that, that, is, that will not be known and come to light. The psalmist write, mention this all the time. Oh God, you know my folly, the wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. For he knows, chapter, or Psalm 44, the secrets of the heart. Uh, and in 90, he says, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your uh, presence. We could add to this in numbers when the Israelites were out wandering the wilderness. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. Did you know that every website you click is monitored by both the federal government and major internet companies like Google, Facebook, Amazon, all that. In fact, the reason Google came up with Google Mail, Gmail, is not to provide you a nice, free, and convenient service you can have on your phone. It's because Google realized that once you clicked off Google search onto the website, you know, ESPN.com, whatever it is, they could no longer monitor what it is that you're doing and thus sell your information to advertisers. So you create Gmail. Now they're getting loads of stuff into your stuff, right? Facebook does the same thing. Have you ever had this experience? Maybe you're on the Amazon, right? Somewhere down in South America, and you're searching for, I don't know, pots and pans, what it is you're looking for. And all of a sudden, you click over to the Facebook, and what do you find? Advertisements for pots and pans. You're thinking, man, had I seen that deal five seconds ago, would have gotten that, right? I mean, you know why you're getting that ad now, right? Next time you, you, you Google something, uh, 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 who, what? What are the Reds going to do to actually win a game this year? You're going to get ads on, on Amazon about buy this Reds gear. Right? It's because everything you do is monitored by these companies. It isn't just private companies. It is the, it is the government itself. In Utah, I saw this whenever we went on Mission Trip Utah, sits the Utah Data Center. This is a bit of a meme, so I hope you have a good laugh. But this is the actual building, and someone changed the sign. Um, the Utah Data Center is a massive federal government facility that stores personal emails, um, internet searches, cell phone calls, and other public data. It is part of the National Security Agency and is right now the largest data storage facility in the whole world, out in the middle of the desert. In 2015, a certain site... I don't want to give it away, but is a site that facilitated adulterous relationships. Someone hacked into it, released the personal names of every user, and as a result, ruined marriages and ministries, among other lives. And all of a sudden, people became really nervous about their activity online. I'm the sort of guy, if I were to bring my laptop out here, over the webcam is duct tape, right? Right? I'm that guy. 
Everything we do online is subject to, uh, well, just the information is saved by both private and public entities. But here's the thing. We fear that more than we fear the Lord exposing our deep hearts. We fear those people finding out what websites we visit, what mental conditions we're afraid we might have, certain text messages we sent late at night, more than we do the creator of the universe exposing who we really are. And the Bible warns us, it will be exposed. Here's the third thing we need to know. Accountability is an act of love. Accountability is an act of love. Although it's unpopular to say, but confronting our brothers and sisters in Christ is a biblical mandate. It's strange, isn't it, that we tolerate honesty from our doctor and our mechanic, but we will not tolerate honesty from people we share faith in Christ with. It wasn't that long ago I went to my personal doctor who I've had since I was in sixth grade. Uh, we started going there when I started getting migraines, and, and, and uh, I've been with him ever since. Even when we lived in Brett County, we still come up every once in a while to, to go to him. And he poked me in the belly like the Pillsbury Doughboy, right? Just, <laughs> and he says, don't you think we ought to be getting on a diet? You know what I didn't do? Ha, ha, well, I've got to find another doctor. I'm going to say something nasty about you on Yelp. What did I say? Yup. <laughs> right? That's what I said. <laughs> you ain't telling me nothing. I don't know, doc. Well, I don't want to go on no diet. Right? Chocolate cake is delicious to the glory of God. Have you ever tried to be a preacher around Baptist where everywhere you go is fried chicken just waiting for you to be eat hot and tasty as dark meat to the glory of God? No, I don't want to go on no diet. I wasn't offended. It's what he does. Yet if one who is spiritual comes along and says, you know, I've, 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 I've grown to love you over the years, but I'm concerned in this one area and I'm afraid of what it's doing to your marriage. Suddenly, well, we've got to go find another church. Suddenly, I've got to sit on the other end of, 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 the, of, of, the, of the sanctuary. Suddenly, I've got to rant and rave online. But this is precisely what the Bible tells us. Galatians 6, 1-2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in spirit of gentleness. Notice that spirit of gentleness. Mark that part out. Keep watch on yourself. Notice that language too. Lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 5, uh, Paul says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church you're called to judge? Mark that out of your Bible. You don't need that. Or what is it that we saw in our study of, of, of Proverbs, particularly when we talked about friends? Iron sharpens iron. So one man sharpens another. If we knew someone who is in a cycle of destructive behavior, would it not be an act of love to intervene? What if the person was deep in alcoholism, anorexia, abuse, or self-harm? Would failure to intervene be wrong? Why is the same not true when it comes to the sanctification of one's soul? To be clear, confrontation must first of all be taken seriously. So 1 Timothy 5.20 says, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. See how serious it is? 
You can mark that verse out of your Bible. We don't need that in the 21st century. We know better. Secondly, we are told that, that it is to primarily remain private. Matthew 18. And we've, we've looked at this passage over time. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Too often we are quick to skip this step and move to the public part of it. Thirdly, accountability should be motivated by love. My bros, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner and his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And you will prevent a lot of brokenness. Fourthly, when in world accountability, we must be prepared to forgive. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him, Jesus says. You can't get more straightforward than that, can you? Paul in Colossians 3, bearing with one another. That's the hard part of, of church life, isn't it? Bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Notice the theological root of this. We have been forgiven much, and no one in this world has sinned against you more than you have sinned against God. And if God can forgive you, why can you not forgive others? Finally, Accountability is for the purpose of restoration. James 5, therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. I've mentioned this before. In a book he wrote in 1520, Martin Luther wrote three major works, but one of them had to do with the seven sacraments of Catholicism, Martin Luther coming out of Catholicism. And he concluded there should be three what we call as Baptist ordinances. Can you guess what they are? He starts out this way. He ends with two. Lord's Supper and baptism are two, obviously. But he, he insisted at first at keeping a third. Confession. I don't think Luther was right, and he realized he wasn't right by the end of the book. But I don't think he was necessarily wrong. We must learn to examine ourselves and together become more like Jesus. Isn't that what James encourages us to say? Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it's a sin. If you have a nature like David, and we all do, then we all need a Nathan in our life. Who is your Nathan? Are you humble and spiritual enough to be a Nathan for someone else? Would someone trust you with that role? What sin do you this morning need to repent of? If Nathan were to arrive in your life and point out your sin so glaring to everyone else, how would you respond? With anger? Resentment? Would you take offense? Or would you see that your sanctification is more valuable to you than your ego. And so you respond with repentance. Let right now be that moment. What do you right now need to confess, need to repent, and need to be restored of? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I ask that you would be so kind as to convict us in this time of invitation. What a difficult text this is. And I don't think it would be appropriate for us just to skip by the courage that Nathan has here, that we as Christians, we're so afraid of offending someone, losing someone. Years ago, I did 
I studied the the uh, great revival, 1800 here in Kentucky, and something stood out. The churches of Kentucky then would rather close their doors for offending sinners than keeping the budget high because they refused to confront sin. May we be as courageous. But may we ourselves be of godly character that love and gentleness is how we are perceived everywhere. This is not an easy subject, but as a biblical mandate, may we be found faithful to it. And Lord, I ask that every single one of us here today, that we would look into our hearts and would you convict us of sin and may we crucify it and repent from it, never to return to it. Would you be so kind? In the name of your glorious son, we pray. Amen.